too short and it shows uh, it's you know makes prominent whatever does not uh, does not have to be prominent and so that you believe me this episode comes from a sidur a sidur you know very orthodox sidur not a reform sidur yes yeah, so is uh, this is this miniature is from a sidur that was drawn in uh, northern italy and this picture that I showed you in the previous slide. And here we see Seder Chatanim, the order of the wedding. And there are instructions, what should be done, what should be said. And here the episode that we see is actually, he's putting the ring on her finger. Yes, uh, let me go back, you see that enlarged. Yes, you see, he's putting the ring on her finger. And it says here, the text it says that he should put the ring on her finger and tell her, Hared mekudeshedli kedat Moshe Yisrael. Yes, with this ring I betroth you. And so, and then the Berkat Erusin and Bore Priyagefen, all the blessings are in orderly way. So we see this episode, that's a typical Jewish episode in Renaissance Italy. Yeah. Question. Yes, question. Yes. Ah, uh, okay. The only comparison that you can show is, as I said last night, is typical picture episode at this period is the bride and groom are holding hands. Like that you saw in the Jewish bride as well, yes. <laughs> in what way? Ah. ah, you think she's like more modest. But you should, what you should do, if you were my student, then I would send you to do this, to look at fashion and, and how women were dressed in Renaissance Italy and compare to see this is not something, let's say, if it's not something typical, whether it's typical or not, I think it's very typical of northern Italy. It's not something that, let's say, because of modesty. That's how women were dressed in Renaissance Italy. She's more massive, okay. Okay, maybe. I'll show you a few more pictures of weddings from Renaissance Italy, and you can see if it's consistent. Like in this, look at these two. These two, okay. Um, this one, I want to maybe to begin with this one. This is the rabbi. You see, the rabbi in Renaissance Italy was also not very modest. Not all the rabbis were like that. But we know that, we know that not all the rabbis were, had beards. beards. Yeah, what do you say? Yes, I mean, there were many of them were shaved, like he, this guy. Although not, not all. I mean, the Ashkenazi rabbis in Italy were more modest. Uh, so, and they look at the bridegroom. His head is not covered. Yes, his head is not covered. And they were... Many Italian Jews, especially in northern Italy, especially in the area of Veneto, the Venice and the environs of Venice, that it really did not go, the Jewish men, with a kippah or a hat. Because they say it's very hot here, and it's not in the Bible, which is correct. It's not in the Talmud. So they decided to, that covering the head is not a must. And we know that that was even surprising for people of the time, because when a Polish guy came to visit in Venice, a Polish Jew, came to visit in Venice in the 17th century. We have a report that he was very surprised to see rabbis that are clean-shaved and without covering their heads. So anyway, so here's one episode. Here is another. This one comes from a manuscript that's today in the Vatican. It's very interesting. It was confiscated by the Vatican centuries ago, and until today is in the Vatican. It's uh, called Arba Turim. It's a book about uh, Jewish law. And it's also very interesting that uh, Italian Jewish artists would illustrate, would illuminate books of law. It's like you buy today a book by Ovadia Yosef or Shulchan Aruch, and you have miniatures in it, which is very, you know, novel idea. I mean, today no one would think about that, but at that time they would do that. So this is the beginning of Tour Even Aezer. Even Aezer is the tour, is the section of the Jewish law that deals 
with marriage life, with personal status. So lot to veyoda adam levado. It's not good for a man to be alone, so he should take a wife. So that's the beginning of the two, and we have a wedding episode. I want to show you detail of that wedding episode. Wait a second. Here is the detail. The bride and the bridegroom. I'm sorry, the bridegroom and the bride. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> it's too long to say bridegroom. Anyway, and he's putting the ring on her finger, and you see the rabbi here is bearded. Not all of them were clean-shaved. And then well, the next episode that we see, is another episode, is the dance of the bride and the bridegroom. Okay? You see there is an orchestra playing while they dance, and you can see that for the dance, they put new customs even. Look at the beautiful of the costumes here. It's all embroidered in gold. And there's uh, this fair coat, which is very nice. He's again, his head is not covered, but for this, for the dance, he covered his head, not because of modesty, but that's part of the fashion for the dance. Uh, we'll talk more about this miniature in a second, but I skipped something that I want to show. It's very important. This miniature that's in a, in a manuscript that's today in the British Library in London. It's, I'm not sure from which town in Italy it comes now, but it doesn't matter. We see a special, very interesting custom of Italian Jews. On the day of the wedding, on the day of the wedding, the bride would be led in the streets of the Jewish quarter, of the ghetto, riding on a white horse. You see her here, it's, the miniature is not in good condition, but you can still see. She's riding on a white horse, while one soldier is going in front of the parade, you can say, and then there are 10 men following her. But she's the center, she's the queen of the day. Everybody looks at her as she marches in the street, and, do it for confetti on her and so on. So she is the woman of the day, yes? I mean, never in Ashkenaz, never in Sfarad, you'll see something like that. And by the way, there is also here uh, something very sexual in this miniature. You see at top of the page, you see a man is shooting an arrow to a, an, a, a bird that is standing there. It's this sexual, this means that he's going to have intercourse uh, that night. I mean, this is a symbol in it in, it, in Italian. If you said that in Italian, it's uh, like uh, something to say in a nice way that they're going to be married and have a child. Anyway, okay. Okay, so let's go back to it. Now, in this miniature, and this goes back now to your question, we see the bridegroom is putting the ring on the finger of the bride, his right hand, her right hand. Okay? This way that the Italian Jews did their wedding by this showing the right, two right hands joined together, comes from ancient Rome. This is a very old custom that was preserved in Renaissance Italy. I'm showing you here, these are sarcophagi from, look at the date, second century to the common era. This is ancient Rome. The junction, yes, it's called in Latin dextraum junctio. The combination or the junction of the right hands. That's how it was done in ancient Rome. This is a symbol of marriage since antiquity until the Renaissance and Baroque periods. If you look at pictures of weddings from, by Italian artists of the Renaissance, for example, Perugino and Raphael, this is the wedding of the parents of Mary, yes? Uh, Joseph and, uh, I mean, uh, and Mary, yes? The, pa the parents of Jesus, I'm sorry. So we see the episode took place, according to Christian tradition, in front of the temple, and the person who married them was the high priest. So you see Joseph here and Mary, and they are joining the right hands. Yes? And even this episode, I want to say that this model on Jewish weddings in Renaissance Italy, the artist not only shows the combination of the right hands, but also men are on one side and women on the other side. Yes, in this episode of Raphael, which is a very Christian episode. Yes, I mean, if you... Uh, do you know this painting? Yes, everybody should know. I mean, if you learned once art history or read uh, Johnson or Panofsky, you know this painting very well. 
And it's, it's a typical, again, wedding episode, but here they're not the right hands. You see, she is with the right hand, no? Yes, she is, and he is with his left hand. Why is that? Why in this picture is different? According to the art historians, the artist uh, Jan van Eyck did not want to make, uh, uh, to distort the painting too much, and this would be disturbing for him that the right hand of the bridegroom goes in front of his body, so he, he changed it a little bit. But this is typical wedding painting, and by the way, the couple is Italian. And you have, for example, the dog, remember the dog will come back to it. The dog is the symbol of fidelity in marriage. It's not the pet animal of the couple, yes? And this whole episode takes place in the wedding room. This is the, the chest where they put the dowry, uh, the clocks that are here are showing familiarity that's inside the house and so on. Okay, let's go back to Jewish art. And so now you can compare Raphael and Arba Turim. Jewish episode, Christian one, and you can see a Jewish couple, let's say from the past, the parents of Jesus, and the Jewish couple in contemporary Italy. Yes, the joining of the right hands. Okay, uh, now, the next thing that we have to discuss now is the dance. The dance, no one here raised his hand to ask me a question. Dance, mixed dancing in the 15th, 16th century, even the 20th century, the 21st century, is not something so common in Judaism. If you go to a Haredi wedding today in Jerusalem, you won't see mixed dancing. Men don't dance with women in public. It's not allowed. And here we see in the 15th century, centuries ago, a couple is dancing, a man and a woman dancing. It's not so common. I mean, in, you'll never find such an episode, for example, in Ashkenaz. In Sepharad, you see episodes of women dancing only. This is the song of Miriam in the Sister Sepharad Yagadot. We see Miriam is singing or here, and with other women. We never see men and women together in a dance episode because that was not allowed by rabbis. How could it be that in Italy it was allowed? I mean, again, we speak about the position of the woman. You should know the place of dance in Italian Renaissance society. Dance was extremely important. Part of education is like you go to school and you study uh, algebra and uh, philosophy and uh, literature, dance was really a primary way of life. I mean, every person of the nobility, at least, should know how to dance and not to dance in, a, let's say, for joy only and so on, but this is part of the manners of the time. You should know how to perform, you should know how to stand in front of audience and so on, and also you should know how to dance. This is, if you go to weddings, if you go to public events, uh, dancing is a must. So what is interesting is that the Italian Jews of the Renaissance really accepted it, many of them, not all. And for example, the most important theoretician of dance in Renaissance Italy was a Jew, this guy. I don't know how many of you know about him or heard about him today, not many know about him, but he wrote, he composed the first book ever on the theory of dance. His name is Guglielmo Ebreu da Pesaro, and here we see him. This is the man, and he's teaching two, these two Christian ladies to dance. Yes, I mean, he was a master of dance. And in this book, he explains why it's important to dance, because you breathe more, in a more correct way, and so on. I mean, it speaks about the philosophy of dance in this book, Trattato del Ballare, yes, dell'arte del Ballare. That's how it's called in Italian. And so the rabbis, of course, were not very happy that many, let's say, wealthy Jews in the Italy of the time are interested in dance, because what it can lead to, that like this guy is teaching Christian girls to dance. 
I mean, it's not so good in a Jewish point of view, and also not from a Christian point of view, that they get mixed together in such a way. Because they dance, they touch each other, what will happen next? Who knows? Yes, I mean, that was the fear. But as I said, dance of the couple at the wedding was a must. I mean, every wedding in Italy at the time, I'm showing you non-Jewish miniatures here, you have the couple is giving the right to the first dance. They dance in front of everybody, and then uh, the other couples go and dance as well. So here, these are some Italian miniatures, not Jewish, to show you the first, the couple always, uh, after the, the ceremony is finished, the official ceremony, they go out and dance in front of everybody. So the Jews, uh, the wealthy Jews follow that. And the, we go back to the Rothschild miscellany. Even it shows in one miniature, there is a piyut for wedding. Ayached Shimcha, yes, the piyut for a wedding. And we see the orchestra is playing. Again, two figures are playing, the lauta. And then there are three couples that are dancing. One, two, three. It's not only the bride and the bridegroom that dance in public. Those uh, Jews that wanted that and did, really did, did follow that, also they show married couples are dancing. Married couples are dancing in public, touching each other. And not every rabbi was happy with that, but some say this is allowed if they are married and the, and the wedding, it's allowed and so on. The other place, the other time that it's allowed to dance, mixed dancing in Renaissance Italy was in Purim. This is a book, uh, the same miniature that the same miniature that I've been showing you. Uh, this is the Maimonides again, Sefer Zmanim, the book of the holidays. So you have the holiday of Sukkot, the holiday of Purim. And the holiday of Purim, by the way, the, uh, in, it was in Renaissance Italy that the masks for Purim were invented in, under the influence of the carnivals of Venice, actually, that take, pl take place around Purim as well in March. So the rabbi is allowed in Purim for mixed dancing. Why? Because everything you do opposite, so it's allowed. So this was allowed. So for Purim and for married couple, it was allowed to make, have mixed dancing. Okay, now we become maybe the most luxurious object that survived, Jewish object that survived from Renaissance Italy. It's also in the Israel Museum. It's a jewelry box. Jewelry box, uh, it's called in Italian, cofanetto. Cofanetto, it's a jewelry box, but we have only one Jewish. We have about 50 or so Italian Christian ones that survived. It's a silver box in which a woman would put her jewelry. It's a small, very beautiful box. And this one is Jewish, of course, because you can see it has many Hebrew letters on it. And the, the cover has uh, this kind of uh, dials on it, and they're written in Hebrew. And actually, if you read the Hebrew, it's not Hebrew because it's Italian. It's Italian written in Hebrew letters. That's what is called Judeo-Italian. Like you have Ladino, Spanish in Hebrew letters. You have Yiddish, uh, German in Hebrew letters. You have Judeo-Italian. So it says, for example, Kamiji, yes, shirts of Meish. It's a combination of Hebrew and Italian. Shirts of, womb, of men, and you have Tovai, towels, and so on. And so how this was used, let's see if I, oh, here I have, I have it here better. How this was used, uh, you see the dials are going in Hebrew, in Hebrew order, Aleph, Bet, yes, from right to left. And there are these like numerical values. Aleph is one, Bet is two, and so on. And with the dial, the woman would mark how many, let's say, sheets or uh, towels she has of each. Okay, she can mark here, let's say she has 12. So she will put the dial on you'd bet, yes? So that's how this was working, yes? So, uh, what? 
Yeah, record keeping, record keeping. And you see the Tovai, Kamiji, you see the letters are written in Hebrew, but they are in Italian. In Italian. Sometimes we have Hebrew words like Kamiji Meisha, Kamiji Meish. Yes? Uh, men's shirts and women's shirts, yes? So it's a combination of Hebrew and Italian. So this is the section that I'm showing, this is the section that's at top, the cover. So why it's on a jewelry box? None of the Italian Christian jewelry boxes, the Cofanetti, the Italian Cofanetti, has something like that. This is the only one that has it. So the question is why? First of all, before I go to answer that, you should know that uh, how they would keep the shirts, the linen, and so on in Renaissance Italy. There were these special cases that are called cassone. Cassone, these are wooden cases, usually illustrated, especially of the wealthy class, and they stand on the floor, and these are the cabinets of the time. So here, let's say she would put 20 uh, sheets, and she would lock it, and she would mark on her dial there how many she has. Okay, that, these are the cassone. Okay, so we go back to the box. Before I reply that uh, question, why these dials are there, look what's on the front of this box. On the front of the box are three women, okay? And each one is doing something. She's doing a mitzvah from the Mishnah, from Tractate Shabbat. Here she is doing the challah. She's putting aside the maser for the challah. And the blessing around her in Hebrew, Baruch atah Adonai, lo nukhan, and so on. Asher kedishan, nuzav, tzivanu, lafrish challah. Lafrish challah. Here she is in a tab. This is a nida. It's a woman that has to... to no, it's a woman. It's a woman you can see her breasts if you come close enough. I mean, and it says, Asher kedishan, alatvila. And here she lights the Sabbath candles. It is the Italian... Candlestick of the Renaissance. That's how it looked like. And you see, Ladlik Ner Shel Shabbat. You can even read this. I think it's very clear. Ladlik Ner Shel Shabbat. So here we see these three women, and according to the Mishnah, these are the primary commandments of a woman. Yes, it says in Tractate Shabbat, if you go to the synagogue on Friday, you hear it every Friday, Al Shalosh Averot Nashim Etot Bishat Lelatan, on an account of three transgressions, women who die during childbirth, that they are not careful in putting the halai side, doing the nida, doing the going to the tab, and then also lighting the Shabbat candles. So here we see the three commandments for a Jewish woman that was given to her as a gift, probably as a, for the wedding. And she should remember what, are, what is important for her as a Jewish woman. But this is very Renaissance object because first of all, it's done for a woman. And then we see all the figures are women. And the most striking feature is the centerpiece, you can say. It's not the Playboy, it's a Jewish box from the Renaissance. And she's fully nude emerging from her tab. She's not hidden. You see her breasts, you can see she's totally nude. And for me, it always reminds of this. I don't know, maybe I'm too far. But it's like she's rising from the tab. Yes, like Venus, because this is the idea of the time, to show the beauty of the woman. So the artist takes advantage of even when he talks about commandments that are from the Mishnah or from the Bible to show the beautiful woman, yes? Which is amazing. Now, okay, now, uh, what is the meaning of this thing? This is very interesting, the meaning of this that is very, also very Jewish. According to the halacha, if you are very persistent and you are not Reformed Jew or conservative, you are not allowed to go on Shabbat with any object because uh, it's like, it's, it's uh, uh, no, what's the word? Uh, it's like a work, yes. Uh, yes, it's like, uh, yeah, it's not allowed to carry anything. 
So uh, even people, there are people who put their talitot in the synagogue and they use them only when they reach the synagogue. And so what about this woman in Renaissance Italy? She wants to go to the synagogue on Shabbat, but she's worried that her maid, which would be usually Christian, would steal her linen or something. So what does she do? She marks how many she has of each in Hebrew letters. She puts the keys to the cassones to this inside this box, and she goes with the key of the box of the cofanetto as a piece of jewelry. This is allowed by halacha. This is allowed by halacha. There is a whole discussion of it in, the, in this period about the piece of jewelry that you put here and can be a key as well. And this she is allowed to. It's not a mukze. This is allowed. So this is a very useful box. I mean, very Jewish and very Renaissance Italian. It's amazing, this box. It's really amazing. OK. OK, so uh, the last few things I want to show you is uh, even something that you would not expect. I spoke about here about this beautiful lady emerging from her tub and doing the nida. And by the way, there were even rabbis in Renaissance Italy that complained that some women, especially the young, go to a mikveh where everyone can look at them. It's not a mikveh that is totally covered. They especially go to the river or place that people, the men can look at them and see how beautiful they are. So some rabbis complained about that. <laughs> so we know that's not uh, Poland or Russia or Hungary. Anyway, okay. So, and then we have, I'm showing this episode of nude Venus while Cupid is playing with her breasts. Would you believe this from a religious Jewish object? <laughs> it's from a ketubah, <laughs> from a marriage contract. Look, the top episode of a marriage contract from Pisa, from the city of Pisa. Uh, it's in the Skirball Museum in Los Angeles. You can go and see the original if they'll show it to you. And but, this is understood in an allegorical way. Again, it's not uh, like in the box that we saw here. It is not to show something attractive. Maybe it is, but it's like the excuse is something religious. So here the excuse is uh, something that is connected with the norms of the time. She's... This is Venus, but next to her is a woman also nude with a dog, because the dog, as I said before, is the symbol of fidelity in marriage. So this is an allegorical figure, because Venus in this way, when Cupid is playing with her, is what is called in Italian Venus Urania, Venus of love that ends with marriage. So for example, like in this painting of Titian that maybe you've seen, it's a very famous painting, it is Venus again, and the dog is next to her. You see, that's because this is Venus Urania. So the Jews would take from the art of the time and adopt it in a very interesting way. Okay, the last aspect that I want to talk about is the religiosity of the Jewish women in Renaissance Italy. Some women were something that is totally unheard of elsewhere among the Jews of Europe. Some women were shochatot, kosher slaughterers, yes, which is really unusual. The only community in Europe that allowed it is Italian, Italian rabbis, they allowed it. Uh, for all kinds of circumstances that maybe I can explain later. But anyway, so you see, for example, a slaughtering house, and you see the men are doing some work, and also there is a woman here. And a few years ago, this was discovered, one of the collectors of Judaica in Tel Aviv, actually, a certificate for a woman to become a kosher slaughterer, to become a shochetet. Her name is Belladonna. You see her name? Belladonna. Yes, beautiful Isha Yafa, beautiful woman. Belladonna. And the rabbi from the city of Siena that signed this certificate says here that she came in front of him and she knew to check this, the knife, but Ka Sakin, 
what was good, she knew what was uh, good to slaughter, she knew. She did not faint when she saw the blood. And I give her this certificate. Here, the rabbi, uh, what's his name? Uh, David Chetoni of uh, Siena. He gives the certificate to this woman to become a shochetet. Yes. In Italy. Italy was a big center of many shivot, and um, I think that's the, uh, we can speak about when we summarize this talk, that the atmosphere of the time, let's say the humanistic ideas of the Renaissance, influenced them. Influenced them, and they adopted them to Jewish life. Yes, because we know the improvement in the situation or the position of the women in Italian society was a parallel. I mean, there were many women that became actors and writers and so on, that you don't hear in Germany or in other countries of the time. So it really, I mean, the Jews of Italy adopted what they saw around them. And uh, also what we have now new, that's also first here, the good, what you ask really is related to that. Women became heroines of the time. Like for example, Judith, she became a big hero in the Italian culture. Here we see a sculpture of Donatello and the painting by Botticelli and Mantegna to show Judy, this apocryphal figure. It's not in the Bible, but she's in the Vulgate, in the Christian Bible. This woman that, I don't know if you know the story of Judith. It's an apocryphal story. You can read in the Wikipedia. This woman that saved her town in antiquity, in a Jewish town in, in Judah, and because she killed, she slaughtered the, the general that was about to kill the Jews of that town. So she's shown as warrior women and so on. So she became a big hero in Renaissance Italy among the non-Jews. Now the Jewish population in Italy say they depict this woman that is Judith. She's a Jewish woman. She was very strong. She's not in the Bible. So what? What they did is they combined her with Hanukkah. They made her the hero of Hanukkah. So you have Judah the Maccabee. You have Judith. Here she's slaughtering this Holofernes and beheading him. And this is a piyut for Hanukkah in the Rothschild miscellany. And we see Judith. He is Judah. He is, she is Judith. Both of them are Jews. Yes, I mean, the name represents Judah, Judith. And they won. They are very victorious, very strong. So as a man can become a hero and a general, so a woman can. Yes? And even if you want to look at a typical Hanukkah lamp of Renaissance Italy, it's not Judah, it's Judith. At the top of the lamp, this lamp is in the Jewish Museum in New York. She's with the sword and holding the head of all of fairness. So the heroine of the holiday is like you have Queen Esther for Purim, you have Judith for Hanukkah. That's how the Italian Jews understood this and made her really a full-fledged yet heroine of the past. Okay, let's skip that. Hey, I mean, now, okay. Sometimes she appears also Judith in a ketubah, and really this is to warn the bridegroom if you don't behave. <laughs> so that's, we have that as well. Yes, I mean, even that. Okay, the last thing I want to show you is, in the Rothschild miscellany, we have the only illustration until the 20th century, for centuries we don't have that, of Eshet Chayil. The only place that they thought of depicting the Eshet Chayil, the woman of the Lord, the woman that is, uh, let's say, so superior and so that you sing for her every Friday. So in the Rothschild miscellany, we see the Eshet Chayil seated on a golden chair while her husband and two sons are standing and listening to what she commands them. Yes, while in Sfarad we saw the master of the house commanding the women and the children, here's the woman. Here's the woman. It's really reverse of everything that we know. Yes? So, uh, 
in one of the manuscripts, and that's the shock, my shock of discovery, my discovery was maybe 20 years ago, uh, there is a sidur that was made for a woman, okay? And the, the rabbi that wrote it is very well known, Avram Farisol, from the, from the city of Mantua, in Italy. He wrote it, Ela Gvuda Banashim, he writes that he wrote it for a very special woman, and her name was erased. You see the three lines that I'm pointing at now? Well, if I can, yeah, this one, two, three, have been erased. We don't know her name. But it was done for a woman. And how do we know it's for a woman? Look at the blessings in the morning, what it says here. Baruch Atah, and so on the blessing, that made me a woman and not the man. Made me a woman and not the man. So this is in Renaissance Italy. The reform movement would adopt it only in the 1970s. But this is in 15th century Italy, more than 400 years ago. Yes? Yes, a woman that is very proud. And one of the most important rabbis in Renaissance Italy is Avram Farisol. We know many books that he composed. Write it for her, and she doesn't have any problem to do it. Yes? We don't know, unfortunately, who this woman was. But here is this a woman, the Jewish woman, that is so proud that she doesn't say, Shasani Kirtzono, that God made me according to his will, but that this made me a woman and not a man. Yes, which is, uh, of course, very significant. Okay, so any questions? Yes. Yeah. Okay, very small community in Italy it was, about maybe about 30,000 in Italy, in the Renaissance. The great pop centers were two towns, Venice and Rome. Venice and Rome were the largest communities. Then you have Mantua, Florence, uh, that are also mid-sized. But you have communities in Italy. And by the way, I do tours to Jewish sites in Italy, for those who are interested, to see like some of the small communities, like in Piemonte, that of uh, maybe a community of 40, 50 people. And they have the most magnificent synagogues. You should know, the best-looking synagogues ever that were created are in the smallest Italian towns where the Jews lived. Some of them were transferred to Israel. If you've been to the Italian synagogue in Jerusalem, in Hillel Street, it was transferred from one of the Italian towns in the Veneto, one of the small towns, Conleano Veneto. So they were very small communities. I mean, most of them, besides Venice, and the Venice was only maybe 7,000 at its height, 7,000 Jews. But the small community is 50, 60, 70 people, that's all. Yeah. Our temple does occasionally or at least primarily is responsible for the needs of the people. Ah, yes, okay, okay, okay. And by the way, why this small size community? Because they would invite one moneylender. Let's, let's say, because the Duke needed in that town, let's say Colonel Veneto, a moneylender. This person cannot come by himself. First of all, he has his family. Then he needs a rabbi, he needs a shochet, he needs, uh, you know, whatever people are assisting him. So it's a community of about 40, 50 people, and they grow a little bit, and, but that's all. And with emancipation in the 19th century, many of them moved to the large towns and then got intermarried and so on. So that's how this, many of these communities ended in the 19th century. Yes? In, yeah, yes. In Germany, it would be, I don't know exactly, but it would be at least 20 times more, I think even more. In Spain, there are no Jews by this time. I mean, after 1492, they are exiled. But the number of the exiled from Spain, it ranges, the scholars have different opinions, but those who, let's say, maximize it, it's a quarter of a million that left Spain. 
It was one of the, you should know, I mean, you've been with us in Portugal. You should know that in Portugal, not many people know, one-fifth of the population was Jewish in around 1500. I mean, just even a few years after the first conversion. One-fifth, all of Portugal was one million people. 2,000, 200,000 were Jews. One-fifth of every Portuguese person living in Portugal at the time was a Jew. I mean, but in Italy, it was a very small community. Yes. Um, what made you get interested in this particular uh, epoch or period of, of art in Jewish history? Uh, because, uh, well, I studied art history at UCLA, as you know, and my field was not Jewish art. And when I showed some interest in this field of Jewish art, um, the closest you can say to what I studied in the university about art history was really Italian Judaica. I mean, the Italian Jewish art that we know today in manuscripts, in ceremonial objects, I didn't show you, the Torah scrolls and the Rimonim and so on, are, let's say, the best, really, the best, from artistic point of view. Although Italian Jews were not large, wasn't never a, it wasn't never a large community, but they really um, produced masterpieces. As I said, the synagogues, you should go to Italian synagogues, they're really pieces of jewelry, each one of them. So much they invest into making them, or the ktubot, I didn't discuss the ktubot in this lecture, but some of the Italian ktubot are like encyclopedia of Jewish symbols, and so rich with so many motifs, and they knew the Bible very well, the Talmud, and they knew Italian art of the time. So they take the, the ideas of Michelangelo and Leonardo and transform them into a ketubah, which is amazing, really, how they took from the society around them, and they were very proud of the society that they lived. It's unlike Polish Jews. Let's say, for example, when a Polish Jew would come to visit Venice, the rabbi of Venice will take him to see the cathedrals of Venice because he's so proud of them. And they, actually, I should tell you that one of the Italian rabbis that was living in this in the 16th century wrote a book in Italian where he says, when the Messiah will come, I wish that Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, will be like Venice of today. That was really, they really loved Italy. It's so different from what we know from other communities, and they tried to take as much as advantage as they could from the society around them. Yeah. Were the artists Jews? Yes, yes, I mean, not all, not all. I mean, we have also uh, Christian artists working for Jews, especially in the rich communities, but many were Jews as well. We know the names of many. They're not so well known because they're folk artists. None of them was educated, let's say, when you read the biography of Michelangelo, for example. When he was eight, nine years old, he was taken to a studio and started the practice. Jewish artists did not have uh, this kind of uh, workshops to, to study, but if someone was talented, he would do, let's say, the Ketubot, the Esther scrolls, the Mizrach tablets for the community. So every ghetto would have a few of these artists, even studios, small studios, but they would have. Yes, yes, please. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's, the woman is also saying, uh, Nira is right. It's, she, oh, this woman also saying that, blessed are you God that has, made, has not made me a slave or a maid. Yes? Lositani, uh, Gentile. I mean, she's very proud to be Jewish. Yes. I mean, it's a sidur for a woman. Even this concept to have a sidur for a woman is a novel concept. I mean, today even you don't feel. Today, if you know the book by Eliza Levy, you women's, yes? It's against uh, women liberation. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's Italian, yes. I mean, the Italians were, by the way, I didn't, for example, speak about music in the synagogue, because I'm not a musicologist. Maybe we'll invite Edwin Sarusi to talk about that. Okay, so, but for example, Italian Jews allowed music in the synagogue when it was forbidden in every other Jewish community. If you go to some of the synagogues in Italy, you see an organ, and they are not from the 20th century, these synagogues. And you know, like a name, Salomone de Rossi. We know the names of composers and we have their music. Salomone de Rossi of Ferrara, he composed the, like you hear Italian opera, but it's a Jewish liturgy. They get in the YouTube, you can see, you can listen to Salomone de Rossi music for the PU team. And it's like you go to La Scala in Milan. Yes, I mean, it's, they adopt in all fields. I show in the field of the art because that's what I'm doing, but it was in all, in all ways of life. Ah, okay, okay. Tomorrow night is a talk that I think was invited by you, if I'm not mistaken, uh, if I remember correctly. It will be about Jewish symbols and how they were created, especially the Magen David and the Menorah, and maybe the Ten Commandments as well. I'll see how much I can put in. And the last talk on Thursday, on Wednesday, I'm sorry, will be about really one of the fields that I'm very involved in now is Jewish folklore, and to show how babies were protected and pregnant women in the past by making beautiful amulets. And I'll try to explain what these amulets mean and how they were decorated and what's the Hamsa, for example, why we use Hamsa, why we use evil eye and stuff like that. It's a lot of folklore, it's very interesting. And to see how not only the Jews of Islam believed in this, I'll show you the Yeke Jews, the Polish, the Italians, everybody really in the past, uh, they had amulets for babies. Okay. Thank you very much.